I have a question for you. Is Elvis dead? Well, I hope this doesn't come as a shock to anybody, but yes, he is. We, we have his body. In fact, the next slide shows the funeral cortege. There were doctors who certified his death. There were those who uh, were close to him who say that he really did die. We have conclusive evidence that Elvis is dead. Uh, some of you remember this, may remember this old song. There's a guy works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis. Just like you swore to me that you'd be true. There's a guy works down the chip shop, says he's Elvis. And he's a liar and I'm not so sure about you. And I thought that sums up the Easter story, really. You've got a guy who's supposed to be dead but isn't. You've got betrayal, you've got it all in there. But anyway, let's put Elvis to one side. What about Jesus? Is he dead or alive? And what difference does that make to us about 2,000 years on? So let's have a look at the story and let's see what evidence there is because we will find that the story shows that the evidence for Jesus being alive is just as compelling as it is for Elvis being dead. But before we look at whether Jesus came back to life again, we need to make sure that actually he really died. Uh, and uh, some people try to make out that Jesus maybe swooned, he fainted on the cross, and then when they, he was put in the tomb that he just recovered spontaneously like that, that he actually didn't die at all. So what does the evidence say? Well, the Bible stories were written at the most 20 years after Jesus' death. And as far as we can tell, that actually they were written within a couple of years. Because people around the Mediterranean area were so keen to hear the stories about Jesus that it was written down quickly, it was circulated. They actually found new ways of producing documents going from scrolls into folios, the early forms of books. That was the early Christians who did that because they needed to circulate these documents and get them out there as quickly as possible. Luke's account of Jesus' life was written to a man who was asking questions about what had happened. What, what is the truth about what I hear? We know that Mark's Gospel was clearly written before Luke. Most of Mark's account is used by Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark and John were all eyewitnesses of what had happened. So let's review what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Uh, crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're told in Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Matthew 27, verse 50, John 19, verse 30, they just say that Jesus gave up his spirit. So they abbreviate different things in different places because they have different bits of the story they want to tell and emphasize. The centurion who was guarding Jesus recognized that he was dead, Mark 15, verse 39. When the officer saw how Jesus died, he said, this man really was the Son of God. Now, Roman soldiers would have been very familiar with death. They were experts at killing people. They could flog someone to with an inch of death and just leave them hanging on there, suffering. They would have known whether Jesus had died or not. The religious leaders, the, um, they didn't want the bodies to be left on the cross because the Sabbath that was coming up, the Saturday, was a special one. And so they asked for the three bodies to be taken down. And so 
the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals either side of Jesus because when you break someone's legs on the cross you can't breathe anymore because the only way you can breathe is by pulling yourself up and pushing with your legs and uh, when your legs are broken you soon run out of energy and you will suffocate but when they came to Jesus they didn't break his legs because they could see that he was already dead so uh, one of them thrust a spear into Jesus' side just to make sure and John records in chapter 19 verse 33 when they came to Jesus they saw that he was already dead and they didn't break his legs one of the soldiers stuck a spear into Jesus' side and blood and water came out and then John adds this comment we know this is true because it was told by someone who saw it happen which is a nice little bit of code that John uses for saying, I was there, I saw it happen, I know what I saw. However, John wouldn't have had a clue what the significance of that was, because the significance of the blood and water flowing was only discovered about 100 years by Dr. Alexander Simpson, who found that it was only moments after the heart ruptured, the blood and water, or this liquid, uh, would flow together and then it would stop and it was only at that point but he was the first person to actually medically uh, document that there were crowds of people it was in a very public place deliberately because when you were crucified you were shamed in front of the whole nation and the crowds around the cross would also have been familiar with death we uh, we treat death in a very sanitized way in our society, don't we? We remove the body as soon as possible. Many relatives never even see the dead body of their loved one. But it was very different in that society. Everyone would have seen it. And I was going to say the mortality rate was very high, but you know what I mean. It's 100%, isn't it? But people died a lot younger then. There were larger families. They were familiar with death. It was, it was a almost an everyday experience for them. There are also several other accounts uh, that were written at the time by people who never became followers of Jesus and they agree that Jesus died without doubt um, whether he rose from the dead they're not so sure about so Tacitus, Josephus and there are a few others as well. So the first conclusion that we really must come to is Jesus really died. Matthew 27, verse 57, 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And some people think this is actually the tomb where Jesus was buried. Other people have other ones that they prefer, but it doesn't really matter where it was. It happened. Uh, so anyway, in the groove in front of the, the, uh, the doorway there, there would have been a large stone weighing somewhere between a ton and two tons. That would have been a roll, rolled across the, in front of the tomb. That was the normal thing. And then unusually, on this occasion, because the, Jew, the Jewish leaders were paranoid that someone would come and steal the body, they had, uh, they had guards put on the door, on the at the entrance to the tomb and they had the whole thing sealed so it became very clear uh, whether anything had been tampered with they wanted to make sure that the body didn't disappear 
There were several men who embalmed Jesus' body. It was getting towards the end of the day and so they did a rush job and obviously the, thought, the women thought that it was a rush job and uh, so the women present, uh, prepared their own uh, pot of spices for embalming. Too late on Friday evening to do anything so they just left it for Saturday and waited till Sunday morning. For Jewish people, the Sabbath starts at sundown on a Friday evening and goes through to sundown on the Saturday. And as I said, this was a very special Sabbath. This was the Passover. This was the, the big day of the year. And it was important for them not to violate it. And so they waited until there was some daylight to see what was going on on Sunday morning. But when they arrived at the tomb on Sunday morning, they were amazed, horrified and shocked to see that the this huge stone had been rolled away. And here is a second important thing to note. No one expected Jesus to come back to life. Imagine yourself in their shoes. You saw Jesus die, you helped take his body down off the cross, you helped put him in the tomb, and the last thing you would expect is to see Jesus come back to life again. I don't know whether you're a fan of whodunit novels and movies. You get a certain way into the plot and you think it was definitely the chauffeur who murdered the Duke. Without a doubt, it seems so clear. But then you read the next chapter and it's clear it's not the chauffeur. It was his estranged daughter. She done it. But then you read a bit further on and it couldn't have been her. Uh, maybe it was the Duke's neighbour instead and then finally you finish the book, you get to the last chapter and you think back through the book and you say, of course, it was the butler all along. It always is, isn't it? It's the butler. And it seems so obvious when you finish the book and you read back and every page, it's clear it was there. And that's what it was like for us. We've finished the book, we've read the story, we know what it was like. Uh, but for the disciples, it wasn't like that at all. They didn't expect Jesus to come back from the dead. A group of at least six women went to the tomb. They included some of Jesus' closest followers, people like uh, his mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene as well. Uh, each of the accounts gives a slightly different list, depending on who they chatted to afterwards. Um, they expected to find a body in the tomb that they would embalm. When they found the tomb empty, they went back into the city to tell what they had seen. And it seems at this point that this group of women split up and went to different places, maybe went to their own homes, uh, went to friends' houses just to hang out together and to puzzle over, you know, what has happened, this terrible thing. Some of them told what they saw, others of them in their grief didn't say anything. One group of women even claimed to have seen angels at the tomb. In Luke 24, verse 9, we're told Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women were the ones who had gone to the tomb. When they returned, they told the eleven apostles and the others what had happened. The apostles thought it was all nonsense, and they wouldn't believe. In spite of everything that Jesus had said, for three years leading up to this point. They just did not get it, and we wouldn't have done any better. They wouldn't believe. Peter and John ran 
as fast as they could to the tomb to see for themselves. They found an empty tomb, just as they were told. And in, verse, in John 20, verse 8, we're told, then the other disciple, in other words, John, the one who got there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. Believed what? Jesus is dead, and the body's been stolen. No one yet knew from Scripture that he had to rise from the dead. They believe what they were told. The body's been stolen. We don't know where it is. And uh, Mary Magdalene had followed them back to the tomb. Peter and John gave her no comfort whatsoever. They were so distraught themselves, they just left her grieving. No one expected Jesus to come back to life. Jesus was their great hope, their Messiah, the Anointed One. But they thought of him as a political saviour, political leader who would throw out the oppressive Romans. Jesus was dead, and so were their hopes. But here's another interesting thing to note, that despite that, over 500 people saw Jesus alive. Peter and John left Mary at the tomb, no comfort to give her. Mark 16, verse 9. Very early on the first day of the week after Jesus had risen to life, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Earlier he had forced seven demons out of her. She left and told his friends who were crying and mourning. Even though they heard that Jesus was alive and that Mary had seen him, they would not believe it. They thought that she was just an emotional woman who had lost it in her grief. In Jewish culture, women were not considered reliable enough to give witness in court. Boo, boo, boo. Importantly, if this story was being made up by uh, Jewish people, by Jesus' followers, there's no way they would have had Jesus appear to a woman or a group of women first. That, w you know, that just wouldn't hold water in Jewish society. But Jesus not only appeared to Mary, but also to some of the other women. Matthew 28, verse 9, Jesus met them, stopping in them in their tracks. Good morning, he said. They fell on their knees, embraced his feet, and worshipped him. I think it was a bit of a shock for them. And uh, then that evening, Jesus appeared to two people traveling from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, about seven miles. That's recorded in Mark 16, verse 12, and Luke 24, verse 13. And these two, when they recognized Jesus, rushed back into Jerusalem to tell everybody else. Luke 24, verse 33, the two disciples found the 11 apostles and the others gathered together, and they learned from the group that the Lord really was alive and had appeared to Peter. And then look what happened next, verse 36, while they were still talking about this. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. I was wondering, what was this like for Jesus? Given the fact that Jesus was standing just outside the room, knowing what was about to happen, and that he was the one who created practical jokes and laughter and amusement and everything else. It's not in the text, so don't, you know, don't take me there, but uh, I think Jesus was having a good laugh outside, just a quiet laugh to himself at what was about to happen and the surprise that they were about to have. Anyway, you can take that or not, depending on what you want to do. But anyway, we have 
10 apostles, two on the road to Emmaus, uh, and others, including this group of six women. So at least 20 people, possibly a lot more, who on the very first day saw Jesus and that he had come back to life. That he was in a physical body that they could touch. And news would have spread quickly. But not everybody was there. John chapter 20, verse 24. Thomas, sometimes called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we saw the master. But he said, unless I see the nail holes in his hands and put my finger in the nails hole, nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe it. Very sceptical, probably came from Oxford, but also in a, in a way very realistic. You know, who heard of people being raised from the dead? It just didn't happen. Jesus did it a few times, but other people didn't. And he wanted proof. And a week later, he got it. Next week, they were all together in uh, the upper room where they'd celebrated the Last Supper together. And, uh, you know, they were waiting. You know, Monday night, nothing happened. Jesus didn't show up. Tuesday night, nothing happened. Wednesday night, nothing happened. Right the way through. And I don't know what it would have been like up there. No one else had seen Jesus since the first Sunday. And uh, they, were, they were meeting, they were, uh, the doors were locked, they were still afraid that the Jewish authorities would come and round them up, uh, possibly throw them in prison, possibly crucify them as well. I'd imagine the place was packed out because of the story. But not everybody had seen Jesus. And for those who had, it's quite possible the doubt began to creep back in again because, you know, that was just last Sunday and nothing else was happening. We're meeting night after night after night and nothing further is happening. There's no resurrected Jesus appearing. And then suddenly, Jesus appeared again. He immediately turned to Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hands into my side. Stop doubting and have faith. And Thomas replied, you are my Lord and my God. One converted skeptic. And over the next 40 days, Jesus met them in numerous different places and at different times, different sized groups of people. He ate with them. They went fishing together, all sorts of things. Uh, just quickly to run through some of them. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, we're told, after this he appeared to more than 500 other followers. Most of them are still alive, but some have died. There was uh, James, the brother of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. They went fishing on the Sea of Galilee, John 21. On a mountain in Galilee, Matthew 28, verse 16. Jesus ate with them and taught them, Acts 1, verses 3 to 8. Then Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, Jesus gave his final commission to them. And that's recorded in Mark 16, verse 19 to 20, Luke 24, verse 30 to 53, and Acts 1, 9 to 12. So there's lots of recordings there. And these are just the ones that are recorded. The implication given is that actually Jesus appeared on many, many other occasions in different places and to various different people. We know that he met regularly with the 11 and uh, possibly a larger group. There seemed to be a group of about 120 that regularly met together and that he, he spent those 40 days 
teaching them about all the things they hadn't understood for three years when they'd been with him. No one expected Jesus to come back to life, but they were totally convinced that he was alive, so convinced that they were willing to die for it. The next slide has a quote from Charles Coulson. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it, were not, if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So that's an interesting perspective to have on it. Another thing to note is no one could produce the body. It would, been, it would have been easy for this story to have been scotched if the body was suddenly produced. But it wasn't. Nobody could find it, even though there had been an armed guard on the tomb. The soldiers uh, were there when the stone was rolled away by an angel, and they went back into the city expecting to be punished. Matthew 28, verse 11, they told the chief priests everything that had happened. So the chief priests met with the leaders and decided to bribe the soldiers with a lot of money. They said to the soldiers, tell everyone that Jesus' disciples came during the night and stole his body while you were asleep. If the governor hears about this, we'll talk to him. You won't have anything to worry about. Another political cover-over. Group for security. These guys were a bit tougher than that. They, um, they wouldn't easily have been pushed to one side. Lord Darling, the uh, former Chief Justice, said, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring a verdict that the resurrection story is true. So that's his perspective on the story. So having looked at all the evidence, why is it important that Jesus came back to life? Jesus himself had brought several people back to life. There was Jairus' daughter, you don't know if you remember that story. There was a, a boy in Nain who was being carried out to be buried. Jesus uh, brought him back to life. There was Lazarus. And... But the difference between their coming back to life and that of Jesus is that they were brought, brought back from the dead in their ordinary body and then they would have to die again physically at some point. Whereas Jesus died, went through death, came out of death on the other side of it, and then came back with new life and a different kind of body, what we call a, a resurrection body. And so Jesus was able to move through walls. He was still limited to one place at a time, but uh, it was a different kind of body. Jesus was still fully human when he rose from the dead. He wasn't a ghost. He could eat food. He could be touched. But his body was different. It wasn't limited like ours are. As I said, he could pass through walls, he could uh, appear in different places, but he was still limited to one body in one place at one time. Jesus rose from the dead with a human, as a human with a physical body to show that a human had passed through death and come out the other side passed through into eternal life. Not, and to make the point that this was different from other raisings from the dead that had been seen. 
Jesus' resurrection is just as important as his death on the cross because it shows that the power of death is broken. It shows that everything that Jesus set out to do when he died on the cross, he succeeded in doing. That it wasn't a failure. He broke the power of Satan's rule. He broke the power of sin, death, disease, dominion, uh, demons and disaster. All the marks of Satan's kingdom, all the ways in which Satan has had us trapped, Jesus came to set us free. The resurrection of Jesus shows that God's plans had been fulfilled. The penalty for our wrongdoing is paid so that we can be forgiven. Jesus went through spiritual death for us so that we don't have to. We can have life. There need no longer be a barrier between us and God because we can be forgiven, set free and brought back into relationship with God. And it says to us as well that being a follower of Jesus is not about taking on a belief system. You look at the, the leaders of other religions, that people take on their belief systems and they're all dead. Jesus came back to life, he's completely different, he's unique. It's about starting a relationship with God, it's about receiving life that only Jesus can give. Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to give us life and relationship with God and not just to give us some good ideas to live by. C.S. Lewis, when he was uh, in his late teens, wrote to a longtime friend, Arthur Greaves, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. And he continued to believe that, and he continued to ridicule anybody who was a Christian for the next 15 years, until he was 32. And then he wrote, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And he came to that point having looked at the evidence and said there is no other conclusion that I can come to intellectually. There must be a God. And then it took him about another two years to be finally convinced that Jesus was God. Simple logic convinced him of the truth. But then he found a person and not a belief system. For those of you who know Jesus, you've already met him. Have you experienced the power of Jesus changing your life? And I'm not talking about something that happened 10 years ago. I'm talking about, what about this week? What about today? What about encountering God today in the worship? I don't know if you felt God's presence. I did, very strongly. Uh, one of the main ways that I feel God's presence is like, it's like anointing oil flowing down my forehead, and I felt that very strongly today. Most of us who are part of this church have been set free from all sorts of things that stopped us knowing God, stopped us functioning as God's people, and robbed us of the kind of life that God designed us for. The cross of Jesus is incredibly powerful. And we've seen people, even in this building, I prayed for a girl who was feeling suicidal, 
and uh, we prayed for her, we got rid of the demon that was causing that, just a very simple prayer, told it to go, and it had to, and uh, all feelings of suicide completely disappeared. We've seen people set free from addictions to sex, alcohol, bondages to fear and rejection, you name it, Jesus can do it, he's incredible. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't got a personal relationship with him, you know about him, but you don't know him personally. In other words, you're at that point where you can say, I've heard about God, but I don't know, I'm not absolutely sure whether I am forgiven, I'm not sure whether I actually have new life from God, then this is an opportunity to be able to get right with God. So uh, don't wait until you have all the answers, you never will. Uh, we always have to exercise faith in coming to God. But a simple ABC for this morning. Um, we're here in Oxford, so let's keep it as simple as possible. So the first thing is to admit. To admit that to God that we've done wrong, that uh, we're all in the same boat. We need him. We need to admit that. We need to then believe. Believe that Jesus died for you, that he set you free. Believe that the story is true, or at least take as much of it as you can to say, yes, uh, I'm going to go with, with this. And then the third thing is the is C, to confess your sin to God and to turn to him. Because it was our sin that built this uh, barrier, this blockage between us and God. That's why Jesus died. He dealt with our sin so that that is no longer there. We can, every one of us, have freedom to come into relationship with God. The barrier is dealt with. The cage door is open. Uh, whether we come out or not is up to us. When we were praying in the prayer room, uh, Julian prayed, and he used as his illustration before he prayed, about some red squirrels who were taken to a release area, and they had all the cameras on them, and they opened the door, the cage door, to let the squirrels out, and 24 hours later, they were still in the safety of their cage. And for many people, it's safer to stay where you are. But Jesus has opened the door. There is freedom, there's forgiveness, there's healing in Jesus' name. And uh, when we come to this point, we surrender our lives to Jesus. We allow him to lead us. We allow him to guide us from now on. So if you want to pray this prayer this morning, I'm just going to, uh, if you want to get right with God, I'm going to do it by praying a prayer. I should have said it that way around. And uh, if you want to, you can just silently pray this prayer between yourself and God. Jesus, I don't have all the answers, but I know I need to respond to you. I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong, and I surrender completely to you. Thank you that you died on the cross for me, so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me the gift of forgiveness, new life, and your spirit. I receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever, to forgive me and to lead me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, then an incredible transaction has happened in the spirit realm. You've moved from darkness into light, your sins have been forgiven and you've been moved from being outside of God's family to being in God's family. But that's just the beginning.
There's so much more to knowing God and building relationship with him. It's not that you've just adopted a particular creed or belief. It's that you've started a relationship with a God who loves you passionately and unconditionally. And we would love to be able to help you to grow. So if you prayed that today, today tell the person you came with, and then we've got a, a new believers pack. It's got a Bible in it and a few other things, and we'd love to give you a copy. So come and find me, and I'd love to give that to you. We're going to finish with uh, one last slide there. John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you will put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. If you have faith in him, you will have true life. And, uh, and then I just put on there some resources in case you want to read some more about the evidence. Some great books there, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There are a couple of volumes of it actually as well. Uh, the Case for Christ uh, by Lee Strobel and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So I'd encourage you to read the Easter story until you are absolutely convinced that Jesus is alive. And then open your life to him until you are experiencing that life. So, let's, uh, let's stand together, shall we? Holy Spirit, we ask that you come. Would you come and fill us now? We thank you that you're not limited to one place at one time. But Holy Spirit, you make Jesus real to each one of us, each day, every day, all day, that you're always there waiting. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and fill us now, that you'd make that life of Jesus real to each one of us, that you'd reveal the Father's love to us afresh. We ask that that healing power we talked about at the beginning, that you would come with your healing, that you come uh, both into our physical bodies, but also into our spirit, into our emotions, into our mind, into our relationships, into every area where we need your help, your touch. Is there anybody here suffering from a long-term illness? that you would like God to heal you from. Okay, so we've got uh, Georgia just here, we've got Grant over here, and, um, and Sam at the back as well. Could a couple of people just join around each one? So Grant, Sam, and Georgia. And anybody else? It's not too late. We proclaim over each one of you the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit who caused Jesus to rise from the dead is at work in your physical body, in your spirit, in your emotions, in every part of your being. And so in Jesus' name I break the power of chronic fatigue over you, Georgia. I break its hold in Jesus' name. I break its power and I release you. And over Grant as well, same thing, chronic fatigue and the stuff that's been affecting you. I break its power now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we proclaim that you are set free, that your sickness was taken by Jesus on the cross.
By his wounds you are healed. And so we command life to come into your body. We command health to flow through your bodies. And for Sam as well, we bless you, whatever it is that's been affecting you. We break its power now in Jesus' name. And we say, be healed in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be released in Sam's life in a new way. That he would shine as a light for you, that you'd set him on fire for you. Let him be a firebrand that goes out around this area and uh, sets fire to people all over the place. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill him. So the Holy Spirit come. We ask that you come to each one of us. And Father, thank you that you are so kind, you're so gentle. And just as with Thomas, you didn't rebuke him, you just gave him the opportunity to come back and that your arms were open wide to him. And we thank you that there is always more. There is always more. That you love us so much, that there's always more of your love to experience. There's more of your power, more of your healing to receive. There is more of your anointing to come. And Father, I ask that you would release your anointing on your people to fulfill everything that you've called us to do. Whether it's healing the sick or looking after children or baking someone a cake or whatever it may be. Lord, I ask that you would release your anointing on your people. Maybe people here who um, feel barren. It's not necessarily to do with childbirth, but it might be. Um, but that Jesus wants to come into the barrenness today and change it to fruitfulness. It can be in any area of your life, emotionally, physically, practically, reproductively. Just that he wants to break the curse of barrenness over you. So if that speaks to any of you, just see someone, come up the front, grab me, do whatever, however you feel most comfortable to do that. Or even just cry out to him yourself and thank him for his healing. In Jesus' name I bless you. I bless you in the name of Jesus, the one who died and rose again, the one whose spirit lives in you. I bless you with a greater experience of the Holy Spirit, the one who caused Jesus to rise from the dead, who brings God's life to you. I bless you with a fresh encounter with God over these next days and weeks. May God bless you, may God protect you, may God uh, make you aware of just how much he loves you, that he is completely potty about you, that he is for you and not against you, and may you experience his blessing in your life on a daily basis. In Jesus' name. Amen.